Chapter 12. The Propriety of Miracles The principle, at the same moment that it explains the rules, supersedes them. Sili, Ecce Homo If the ultimate fact is not an abstraction, but the living God, opaque by the very fullness of his blinding actuality, then he might do things, he might work miracles. But would he? Many people of sincere piety feel that he would not. They think it unworthy of him. It is petty and capricious tyrants who break their own laws. Good and wise kings obey them. Only an incompetent workman will produce work which needs to be interfered with. And people who think in this way are not satisfied by the assurance given them in chapter 8 that miracles do not, in fact, break the laws of nature. That may be undeniable, but it will still be felt, and justly, that miracles interrupt the orderly march of events, the steady development of nature, according to her own inherent genius or character. That regular march seems to such critics as I have in mind more impressive than any miracle. Looking up, like Lucifer in Meredith's sonnet, at the night sky, they feel it almost impious to suppose that God should sometimes unsay what he has once said with such magnificence. This feeling springs from deep and noble sources in the mind and must always be treated with respect. Yet it is, I believe, founded on an error. When schoolboys begin to be taught to make Latin verses at school, they are very properly forbidden to have what is technically called a spondy in the fifth foot. It is a good rule for boys because the normal hexameter does not have a spondy there. If boys were allowed to use this abnormal form, they would be constantly doing it for convenience and might never get the typical music of the hexameter into their heads at all. But when the boys come to read Virgil, they find that Virgil does the very thing they have been forbidden to do. Not very often, but not so very rarely either. In the same way, young people who have just learned how to write English rhyming verse may be shocked at finding, quote, bad rhymes, that is, half rhymes, in the great poets. Even in carpentry or car driving or surgery, there are, I expect, licenses, abnormal ways of doing things, which the master will use himself both safely and judiciously, but which he would think it unwise to teach his pupils. Now, one often finds that the beginner, who has just mastered the strict formal rules, is overpunctilious and pedantic about them. And the mere critic, who is never going to begin himself, may be more pedantic still. The classical critics were shocked at the irregularity or licenses of Shakespeare. A stupid schoolboy might think that the abnormal hexameters in Virgil, or the half-rhymes in English poets, were due to incompetence. In reality, of course, every one of them is there for a purpose, and breaks the superficial regularity of the meter in obedience to a higher and subtler law, just as the irregularities in the winter's tale do not impair, but embody and perfect the inward unity of its spirit. In other words, there are rules behind the rules, and a unity which is deeper than uniformity. A supreme workman will never break by one note or one syllable or one stroke of the brush the living and inward law of the work he is producing. But he will break without scruple any number of those superficial regularities and orthodoxies which little, unimaginative critics mistake for its laws. The extent to which one can distinguish a just license from a mere botch or failure of unity depends on the extent to which one has grasped the real and inward significance of the work as a whole. If we had grasped as a whole the innermost spirit of that work which God worketh from the beginning to the end, and of which nature is only a part and perhaps a small part, we should be in a position to decide whether miraculous interruptions of nature's history were mere improprieties unworthy of the great workman or expressions of the truest and deepest unity in his total work. In fact, of course, we are in no such position. The gap between God's mind and ours must, on any view, be incalculably greater than the gap between Shakespeare's mind and that of the most peddling critics of the old French school. For who can suppose that God's eternal act, seen from within, would be that same complexity of mathematical relations which nature, scientifically studied, reveals? 
It is like thinking that a poet builds up his line out of those metrical feet into which we can analyze it, or that living speech takes grammar as its starting point. But the best illustration of all is Bergson's. Let us suppose a race of people whose peculiar mental limitation compels them to regard a painting as something made up of little colored dots which have been put together like a mosaic. Studying the brushwork of a great painting through their magnifying glasses, they discover more and more complicated relations between the dots and sort these relations out with great toil into certain regularities. Their labor will not be in vain. These regularities will in fact work. They will cover most of the facts. But if they go on to conclude that any departure from them would be unworthy of the painter and an arbitrary breaking of his own rules, they will be far astray. For the regularities they have observed never were the rule the painter was following. What they painfully reconstruct from a million dots, arranging in an agonizing complexity, he really produced with a single lightning-quick turn of the wrist, his eye, meanwhile, taking in the canvas as a whole, and his mind obeying laws of composition, which the observers, counting their dots, have not yet come within the sight of, and perhaps never will. I do not say that the normalities of nature are unreal. The living fountain of divine energy, solidified for purposes of this spatio-temporal nature into bodies moving in space and time, and thence by our abstract thought turned into mathematical formulae, does in fact for us commonly fall into such and such patterns. In finding out those patterns, we are therefore gaining real and often useful knowledge. But to think that a disturbance of them would constitute a breach of the living rule and organic unity whereby God, from his own point of view, works, is a mistake. If miracles do occur, then we may be sure that not to have wrought them would be the real inconsistency. How a miracle can be no inconsistency but the highest consistency will be clear to those who have read Miss Dorothy Sayers' indispensable book, The Mind of the Maker. Miss Sayers' thesis is based on the analogy between God's relation to the world on the one hand and an author's relation to his book on the other. If you are writing a story, miracles or abnormal events may be bad art, or they may not. If, for example, you are writing an ordinary realistic novel and have got your characters into a hopeless muddle, it would be quite intolerable if you suddenly cut the knot and secured a happy ending by having a fortune left to the hero from an unexpected quarter. On the other hand, there is nothing against taking as your subject from the outset the adventures of a man who inherits an unexpected fortune. The unusual event is perfectly permissible if it is what you are really writing about. It is an artistic crime if you simply drag it in by the heels to get yourself out of a hole. The ghost story is a legitimate form of art, but you must not bring a ghost into an ordinary novel to get over a difficulty in the plot. Now, there is no doubt that a great deal of the modern objection to miracles is based on the suspicion that they are marvels of the wrong sort, that a story of a certain kind, nature, is arbitrarily interfered with to get the characters out of a difficulty by events that do not really belong to that kind of story. Some people probably think of the resurrection as a desperate last-moment expedient to save the hero from a situation which had got out of the author's control. The reader may set his mind at rest. If I thought miracles were like that, I should not believe in them. If they have occurred, they have occurred because they are the very thing this universal story is about. They are not exceptions, however rarely they occur, nor irrelevancies. They are precisely those chapters in this great story on which the plot turns. Death and resurrection are what the story is about, and had we but eyes to see it, this has been hinted on every page, met us in some disguise at every turn, and even been muttered in conversations between such minor characters, if they are minor characters, as the vegetables. If you have hitherto disbelieved in miracles, it is worth pausing a moment to consider whether this is not chiefly because you thought you had discovered what the story was really about, that atoms and time and space and economics and politics were the main plot. And is it certain you were right? It is easy to make mistakes in such matters. A friend of mine wrote a play in which the main idea was that the hero had a pathological horror of trees and a mania for cutting them down. But naturally, other things came in as well. There was some sort of love story mixed up with it, and the trees killed the man in the end. 
When my friend had written it, he sent it to an older man to criticize. It came back with the comment, Not bad, but I'd cut out those bits of padding about the trees. To be sure, God might be expected to make a better story than my friend, but it is a very long story with a complicated plot, and we are not, perhaps, very attentive readers. Chapter 13. On Probability Probability is founded on the presumption of a resemblance between those objects of which we have had experience and those of which we have had none, and therefore it is impossible that this presumption can arise from probability. Hume, Treatise of Human Nature The argument up to date shows that miracles are possible and that there is nothing antecedently ridiculous in the stories which say that God has sometimes performed them. This does not mean, of course, that we are committed to believing all stories of miracles. Most stories about miraculous events are probably false. If it comes to that, most stories about natural events are false. Lies, exaggerations, misunderstandings, and hearsay make up perhaps more than half of all that is said and written in the world. We must therefore find a criterion whereby to judge any particular story of the miraculous. In one sense, of course, our criterion is plain. Those stories are to be accepted for which the historical evidence is sufficiently good. But then, as we saw at the outset, the answer to the question, how much evidence should we require for this story, depends on our answer to the question, how far is this story intrinsically probable? We must therefore find a criterion of probability. The ordinary procedure of the modern historian, even if he admits the possibility of miracle, is to admit no particular instance of it until every possibility of natural explanation has been tried and failed. That is, he will accept the most improbable natural explanations rather than say that a miracle occurred. Collective hallucination, hypnotism of unconsenting spectators, widespread instantaneous conspiracy in lying by persons not otherwise known to be liars and not likely to gain by the lie, all these are known to be very improbable events. So improbable that, except for the special purpose of excluding a miracle, they are never suggested, but they are preferred to the admission of a miracle. Such a procedure is, from the purely historical point of view, sheer midsummer madness, unless we start by knowing that any miracle whatever is more improbable than the most improbable natural event. Do we know this? We must distinguish the different kinds of improbability. Since miracles are, by definition, rarer than other events, it is obviously improbable beforehand that one will occur at any given place in time. In that sense, every miracle is improbable. But that sort of improbability does not make the story that a miracle has happened incredible. For in the same sense, all events whatever were once improbable. It is immensely improbable beforehand that a pebble dropped from the stratosphere over London will hit any given spot, or that any one particular person will win a large lottery. But the report that the pebble has landed outside such and such a shop, or that Mrs. So-and-so has won the lottery, is not at all incredible. When you consider the immense number of meetings and fertile unions between ancestors which were necessary in order that you should be born, you perceive that it was once immensely improbable that such a person as you should come to exist. But once you are here, the report of your existence is not in the least incredible. With probability of this kind, antecedent probability of chances, we are not here concerned. Our business is with historical probability. Ever since Hume's famous essay, it has been believed that historical statements about miracles are the most intrinsically improbable of all historical statements. According to Hume, probability rests on what may be called the majority vote of our past experiences. The more often a thing has been known to happen, the more probable it is that it should happen again, and the less often, the less probable. Now, the regularity of nature's course, says Hume, is supported by something better than the majority vote of past experiences. It is supported by their unanimous vote, or, as Hume says, by firm and unalterable experience. There is, in fact, uniform experience against miracle. Otherwise, says Hume, it would not be miracle. A miracle is therefore the most improbable of all events. 
it is always more probable that the witnesses were lying or mistaken than that a miracle occurred. Now, of course, we must agree with Hume that if there is absolutely uniform experience against miracles, if in other words they have never happened, why, then they never have. Unfortunately, we know the experience against them to be uniform only if we know that all the reports of them are false. And we can know all the reports to be false only if we know already that miracles have never occurred. In fact, we are arguing in a circle. There is also an objection to Hume which leads us deeper into our problem. The whole idea of probability, as Hume understands it, depends on the principle of the uniformity of nature. Unless nature always goes on in the same way, the fact that a thing had happened 10 million times would not make it a whit more probable that it would happen again. And how do we know the uniformity of nature? A moment's thought shows that we do not know it by experience. We observe many regularities in nature, but of course, all the observations that men have made or will make while the race lasts cover only a minute fraction of the events that actually go on. Our observations would therefore be of no use unless we felt sure that nature, when we are not watching her, behaves in the same way as when we are. In other words, unless we believed in the uniformity of nature. Experience, therefore, cannot prove uniformity because uniformity has to be assumed before experience proves anything. And mere length of experience does not help matters. It is no good saying, each fresh experience confirms our belief in uniformity and therefore we reasonably expect that it will always be confirmed. For that argument works only on the assumption that the future will resemble the past, which is simply the assumption of uniformity under a new name. Can we say that uniformity is at any rate very probable? Unfortunately not. We have just seen that all probabilities depend on it. Unless nature is uniform, nothing is either probable or improbable. And clearly, the assumption which you have to make before there is any such thing as probability cannot itself be probable. The odd thing is that no man knew this better than Hume. His essay on miracles is quite inconsistent with the more radical and honorable skepticism of his main work. The question, do miracles occur, and the question, is the course of nature absolutely uniform, are the same question asked in two different ways. Hume, by sleight of hand, treats them as two different questions. He first answers yes to the question whether nature is absolutely uniform, and then uses this yes as a ground for answering no to the question, do miracles occur? The single real question which he set out to answer is never discussed at all. He gets the answer to one form of the question by assuming the answer to another form of the same question. Probabilities of the kind that Hume is concerned with hold inside the framework of an assumed uniformity of nature. When the question of miracles is raised, we are asking about the validity or perfection of the frame itself. No study of probabilities inside a given frame can ever tell us how probable it is that the frame itself can be violated. Granted a school timetable with French on Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, it is really probable that Jones, who always skims his French preparation, will be in trouble next Tuesday, and that he was in trouble on any previous Tuesday. But what does this tell us about the probability of the timetables being altered? To find that out, you must eavesdrop in the master's common room. It is no use studying the timetable. If we stick to Hume's method, far from getting what he hoped, namely the conclusion that all miracles are infinitely improbable, we get a complete deadlock. The only kind of probability he allows holds exclusively within the frame of uniformity. When uniformity is itself in question, and it is in question the moment we ask whether miracles occur, this kind of probability is suspended, and Hume knows no other. By his method, therefore, we cannot say that uniformity is either probable or improbable, and equally we cannot say that miracles are either probable or improbable. We have impounded both uniformity and miracles in a sort of limbo where probability and improbability can never come. This result is equally disastrous for the scientist and the theologian, but along Hume's lines there is nothing whatever to be done about it. Our only hope, then, will be to cast about for some quite different kind of probability. Let us for the moment cease to ask what right we have to believe in the uniformity of nature, and ask why in fact men do believe in it. 
I think the belief has three causes, two of which are irrational. In the first place, we are creatures of habit. We expect new situations to resemble old ones. It is a tendency which we share with animals. One can see it working, often to very comic results, in our dogs and cats. In the second place, when we plan our actions, we have to leave out of account the theoretical possibility that nature might not behave as usual tomorrow because we can do nothing about it. It is not worth bothering about because no action can be taken to meet it, and what we habitually put out of our minds we soon forget. The picture of uniformity thus comes to dominate our minds without rival, and we believe it. Both these causes are irrational, and would be just as effective in building up a false belief as in building up a true one. But I am convinced that there is a third cause. In science, said the late Sir Arthur Eddington, we sometimes have convictions which we cherish but cannot justify. We are influenced by some innate sense of the fitness of things. This may sound a perilously subjective and aesthetic criterion, but can one doubt that it is a principal source of our belief in uniformity? A universe in which unprecedented and unpredictable events were at every moment flung into nature would not merely be inconvenient to us, it would be profoundly repugnant. We will not accept such a universe on any terms whatever. It is utterly detestable to us. It shocks our sense of the fitness of things. In advance of experience, in the teeth of many experiences, we are already enlisted on the side of uniformity. For, of course, science actually proceeds by concentrating not on the regularities of nature, but on her apparent irregularities. It is the apparent irregularity that prompts each new hypothesis. It does so because we refuse to acquiesce in irregularities. We never rest till we have formed and verified a hypothesis which enables us to say that they were not really irregularities at all. Nature as it comes to us looks at first like a mass of irregularities. The stove which lit all right yesterday won't light today. The water which was wholesome last year is poisonous this year. The whole mass of seemingly irregular experience could never have been turned into scientific knowledge at all unless from the very start we had brought to it a faith in uniformity which almost no number of disappointments can shake. This faith, the preference, is it a thing we can trust? Or is it only the way our minds happen to work? It is useless to say that it has hitherto always been confirmed by the event. That is no good unless you, at least silently, add, and therefore always will be. And you cannot add that unless you know already that our faith in uniformity is well-grounded. And that is just what we are now asking. Does this sense of fitness of ours correspond to anything in external reality? The answer depends on the metaphysic one holds. If all that exists is nature, the great mindless interlocking event, if our own deepest convictions are merely the byproducts of an irrational process, then clearly there is not the slightest ground for supposing that our sense of fitness and our consequent faith in uniformity tell us anything about a reality external to ourselves. Our convictions are simply a fact about us, like the color of our hair. If naturalism is true, we have no reason to trust our conviction that nature is uniform. It can be trusted only if quite a different metaphysic is true. If the deepest thing in reality, the fact which is the source of all other facthood, is a thing in some degree like ourselves, if it is a rational spirit and we derive our rational spirituality from it, then indeed our conviction can be trusted. Our repugnance to disorder is derived from nature's creator and ours. The disorderly world which we cannot endure to believe in is the disorderly world he would not have endured to create. Our conviction that the timetable will not be perpetually or meaninglessly altered is sound because we have, in a sense, eavesdropped in the master's common room. The sciences logically require a metaphysic of this sort. Our greatest natural philosopher thinks it is also the metaphysic out of which they originally grew. Professor Whitehead points out that centuries of belief in a god who combined the personal energy of Jehovah with the rationality of a Greek philosopher first produced that firm expectation of systematic order which rendered possible the birth of modern science. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. In most modern scientists, this belief has died. It will be interesting to see how long their confidence in uniformity survives it. 
Two significant developments have already appeared, the hypothesis of a lawless subnature and the surrender of the claim that science is true. We may be living nearer than we suppose to the end of the scientific age. But if we admit God, must we admit miracle? Indeed, indeed, you have no security against it. That is the bargain. Theology says to you, in effect, admit God and with him the risk of a few miracles, and I in return will ratify your faith in uniformity as regards the overwhelming majority of events. The philosophy which forbids you to make uniformity absolute is also the philosophy which offers you solid grounds for believing it to be general, to be almost absolute. The being who threatens nature's claim to omnipotence confirms her in her lawful occasions. Give us this half-porth of tar and we will save the ship. The alternative is really much worse. Try to make nature absolute and you find that her uniformity is not even probable. By claiming too much, you get nothing. You get the deadlock as in Hume. Theology offers you a working arrangement which leaves the scientist free to continue his experiments and the Christian to continue his prayers. We have also, I suggest, found what we were looking for, a criterion whereby to judge the intrinsic probability of an alleged miracle. We must judge it by our innate sense of fitness of things, that same sense of fitness which led us to anticipate that the universe would be orderly. I do not mean, of course, that we are to use this sense in deciding whether miracles in general are possible. We know that they are, on philosophical grounds. Nor do I mean that a sense of fitness will do, instead of close inquiry into the historical evidence. As I have repeatedly pointed out, the historical evidence cannot be estimated unless we have first estimated the intrinsic probability of the recorded event. It is in making that estimate as regards each story of the miraculous that our sense of fitness comes into play. If in giving such weight to the sense of fitness I were doing anything new, I should feel rather nervous. In reality, I am merely giving formal acknowledgement to a principle which is always used. Whatever men may say, no one really thinks that the Christian doctrine of the resurrection is exactly on the same level with some pious tittle-tattle about how Mother Egare Louise miraculously found her second best thimble by the aid of St. Anthony. The religious and the irreligious are really quite agreed on the point. The whoop of delight with which the skeptic would unearth the story of the thimble and the rosy pudency with which the Christian would keep it in the background both tell the same tale. Even those who think all stories of miracles absurd think some very much more absurd than others. Even those who believe them all, if anyone does, think that some require especially robust faith. The criterion which both parties are actually using is that of fitness. More than half the disbelief in miracles that exists is based on a sense of their unfitness, a conviction, due as I have argued to false philosophy, that they are unsuitable to the dignity of God or nature, or else to the indignity and insignificance of man. In the three following chapters, I will try to present the central miracles of the Christian faith in such a way as to exhibit their fitness. I shall not, however, proceed by formally setting out the conditions which fitness in the abstract ought to satisfy, and then dovetailing the miracles into that scheme. Our sense of fitness is too delicate and elusive a thing to submit to such treatment. If I succeed, the fitness, and if I fail, the unfitness, of these miracles will of itself become apparent while we study them. Mm -hmm.